Hey, Ryan here. This is uh, one of two pre-recorded episodes on the approach to early breast cancer. These are pre-recorded in advance of the birth of our first child. We knew we were going to be pretty busy and not have as much time to keep episodes coming out as frequently, at least for the first month or so. Today's episode will look at the general considerations for someone who is uh, entering the breast oncology clinic for the first time. Next episode, we'll go into the history of the adjuvant chemotherapy regimens that have developed over the years. Just briefly on the nomenclature today, um, I'm talking about estrogen receptor positive hormone receptor positive breast cancer, HER2 positive breast cancer and tuberculosis negative disease. You may also see some tumors referred to as luminal A, which is hormone positive HER2 negative, luminal B, which is hormone positive HER2 positive, aka triple positive, HER2 positive disease, which would be the classical hormone negative HER2 positive, and then basal cell type, which would be another way of referring to triple negative disease. As with all our episodes, please uh, feel free to give us a feedback. We always uh, appreciate any recommendations to help keep this uh, useful for all of you who uh, have listened so far. Thanks so much. Hello, and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. Just Ryan Holstead today. Apologies to those who prefer Ryan Quinn's cheery disposition to my slightly sad-sounding monotone. Today, I'd like to move on into a new tumor subtype and begin our discussion on breast cancer. The clinical management of breast cancer is a very complex topic. Breast cancer is the most common cause of cancer in women, and although in most patients' overall outcomes are generally well, due to the sheer number of patients with this disease, it is the second leading cause of cancer-related death in women. There's probably not any other individual cancer that has gotten as much attention as breast cancer over the years, and the management of it and the evidence behind our modern management approaches is very dense. We are going to do our best to provide a roadmap to approach these patients when you see them in clinic. We anticipate this to be done over approximately six or so episodes, and truthfully, this will only scratch the surface into how to best approach these patients. There are some excellent reviews on the history of the approach to breast cancer, and you can find many summaries in many of the major medical journals. I also highly recommend picking up a copy of Emperor of All Maladies if you have not read it. I think this book, for many reasons, is a good introduction into malignant hematology and oncology, and the chapters regarding the history of breast cancer and the development into our modern approaches is quite is exceptionally well written. We're going to begin our discussions with early breast cancer, which is to say either localized to the breasts or involving the regional lymph nodes. This is primarily a surgical condition. The surgical resection of breast cancer goes back as far as surgery has been around. However, the modern approach uh, includes the addition of radiation to improve regional control, as well as chemotherapy to improve to improve upon the dreaded outcome of distant disease. Unlike in colon cancer, where we may attempt to resect one or two oligometastatic sites, in breast cancer it's generally understood that once the disease is spread beyond the regional lymph nodes into a distant site, which may be a bone or visceral organ, that this is no longer a disease that can be managed with a curative intent. There's an interesting pattern that has emerged and independently for each of the different treatment modalities between surgery and radiation and systemic therapy. And this is that each of these approaches went through a increasingly aggressive approach, which more recently has begun to be dialed back to attempt to maximize quality of life while preserving rates of cure. From the surgical angle, 
In the late 1890s to the 1900s, Dr. Halstead, who has no relationship to me, had developed the radical mastectomy. Dr. Halstead uh, pioneered the theory that breast cancer begun in the breast, spread to the regional lymph nodes, and then eventually would expand further until it had deposited itself into distant locations. In order to maximize the chance of resecting any micromastatic disease near to the primary tumor, his approach had utilized resection of the breast, the muscularis underlying the breast, as well as uh, axillary lymph node dissection. There is even a more radical variant of this resection, which also included resecting some of the underlying ribs as well. Despite these great extremes that were attempted, uh, patients would still have distant disease, and those who didn't had significant issues with quality of life, including significant pain, complications from lymphedema, and the social com complications of the disfigurement of having such a major surgery. Cosmesis has been improved with modern plastic surgery techniques and breast reconstruction, regardless of the extent of surgery, had raised the suspicion that for some patients there may be already micromastatic disease at the time of initial breast cancer diagnosis. And no matter how much resection at the local site is done, this will not prevent growth of disease that has already seeded itself distantly. As such, now patients are risk stratified and some are even able to receive partial mastectomy, a lumpectomy, which is just removing of the tumor in the localized breast tissue, and in some patients we can even avoid a complete axillary lymph node dissection with the utilization of sentinel lymph node biopsies. A sentinel lymph node biopsy is when a surgeon injects an ink or a radiolabeled tracer into the tumor or breast. They then identify any lymph nodes within the breast or in the axilla that take up this tracer and resect those. In patients who have less than three sentinel lymph nodes that are positive for malignancy, we might be able to avoid total axillary lymph node dissection. Other criteria in order to avoid this next step are to have a T1 or T2 tumor and no prior breast surgery, which was demonstrated in the ACO-SOG Z0011 trial, or for those Americans, Z0011. In patients who undergo anything less than a mastectomy, generally we would administer radiation to the breast to prevent local recurrence. Radiation techniques have also modified over the years to decrease the underlying toxicity to nearby structures such as the lung and the heart by utilizing IMRT, applying radiation tangentially to the breast and chest wall rather than directly at the chest, as well as other modifications on dosing and fractionation. In addition, radiation can be can be administered to the axilla in patients who had sentinel lymph nodes positive that were not um, requiring an axillary lymph node dissection. I should mention one Contraindication to performing sentinel lymph node biopsy is a history of prior breast surgery, as this disrupts the natural architecture of the breast and lymph node drainage. Do not feel confident that you're obtaining appropriate lymph node uptake. So moving on into the medical oncology arena, surgery remains the most significant curative therapy in breast cancer. We do know in, in patients, we can reduce rates of distant recurrence and improve overall survival in selected patients with adjuvant systemic therapy, more recently also including neoadjuvant systemic therapy in certain settings. So as with colon cancer, adjuvant therapy is with the goal of eliminating micromastatic disease that is distant. By far and away, the highest predictor of micromastatic disease is lymph node positivity. And in general, patients who have positive lymph nodes are going to be candidates for a discussion on, on uh, adjuvant systemic therapy. The first evidence 
to show improved survival with adjuvant systemic therapy in breast cancer emerged in the 1970s, and this was in a trial by Dr. Bonadonna and colleagues. Dr. Bonadonna had built upon the understanding that came out of the lymphoma and leukemia space, and there's two major developments that helped develop the systemic therapy regimen that he utilized in his landmark 1976 publication in the England Journal. The first of which is the safety and efficacy of multi-agent chemotherapies using different mechanisms of action. So in leukemia, where many active agents were identified, however, individual agents were not able to achieve cure in leukemia patients. Different doses and combinations were attempted, and it was found that systemic therapies can have increased rates of cure when we combine different chemotherapies that interfere at different areas on the cell cycle, such as direct DNA damage, topoisomerase inhibition, anti-metabolite activity. The second major theory is the cell kill hypothesis. Cell kill, kill hypothesis is somewhat difficult to explain uh, without visual aid, so I do recommend taking a look at diagrams on this as it tends to help. Essentially, the theory is that cells divide at a linear rate, and each cycle of chemotherapy that is given kills a portion of cells. Because chemotherapy does not kill 100% of cells at any given time, subsequent cycles are required, and given the theory that cells are going to continue to divide as soon as the previous cycle toxicity has worn off, giving chemotherapy closer to in, in serial numerous cycles, we are able to increase the chance of eliminating all of the cells. Furthermore, when fewer cells are present, the total number of new cells that are appearing on a daily basis is less. So giving chemotherapy earlier, such as when disease is still micrometastatic, increases the chance of eliminating it altogether. Whereas when we have a larger two or three centimeter lesion, we're probably less likely to be able to completely eradicate this with systemic therapy, which is what is seen in our metastatic disease. So with those two concepts in mind, that takes us to the Bonadonna paper, and he combined the, the combination of cyclophosphide, methotrexate, and 5-FU to patients with node-positive breast cancer for a total of one year. This is previous to the understanding of the estrogen receptor and HER2 receptor, as well as methods to detect these, and it was also prior to the modern format of randomized controlled trials. But this was a randomized study, and compared to placebo alone, patients at 24 months were found to have a treatment failure rate of 24% versus 5%. So essentially, this means that there is evidence of disease recurrence, whether it be localized or distantly, and a quarter of the patients who were node positive and did not receive any chemotherapy at all, versus only 5% alone in those who received the adjuvant chemotherapy rate um, regimen at two years. He followed up the study with a 10-year follow-up publication, and this was looking at overall survival, and did find an improvement in overall survival at 10 years of 47 versus 55%. The sad survival benefit was primarily driven by the premenopausal patients, and there is understood to be a component of hormonal suppression from systemic therapy in premenopausal patients who may de- um, continue to derive the best benefit from aggressive chemotherapy early on. Today, generally, adjuvant systemic therapy that is used modernly is thought to provide, on average, a 30% reduction in breast cancer mortality compared to observation alone. As with colon cancer, the relative risk reduction indicates that patients with the highest risk of disease recurrence are those who are going to drive the highest benefit from these relatively toxic treatments. Next episode, we'll go into more detail on the advances and modifications of the original CMF trial. I'll just briefly mention that we talk about the adjuvant regimens as a first generation, such as CMF, a second generation, which includes our anthocycline-based therapies, which are cornerstone of adjuvant breast cancer these days, and then the third generation, which incorporates dose density as well as taxanes. As with our surgical and radiation methods, increasingly aggressive 
approaches were attempted with chemotherapy to try to improve upon those rates of cure. And for a period of time, there was even interest in using mild ablative chemotherapy. So chemotherapy that would entirely eradicate all of the bone marrow, which would be followed by stem cell rescue. Although there was much interest in this for a period of time, randomized controlled trials have been unable to show survival outcomes. This is no longer an acceptable management of patients with breast cancer. Also to be discussed in more detail in our subsequent lectures, or our subsequent discussions, will be additional advances in histologic testing, such as the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 receptor, which have allowed for better risk stratification, patient selection, the addition of non-chemotherapy systemic therapies into our adjuvant approach. All right, so let's think about that hypothetical patient who comes into the medical oncology clinic and the considerations that are going to be part of our discussion and recommendation for or against adjuvant systemic therapy. So starting with the adjuvant approach, you'll often have a patient who's presented after surgery and they'll have a pathology report, an operator report, and help guide your decisions. So first off, be cognizant of the type of surgery that was provided, whether it's a lumpectomy, partial mastectomy, or mastectomy. Be aware of how lymph node status was evaluated, whether this was a sentinel lymph node biopsy or an axillary lymph node dissection. As mentioned previously, if there's evidence of positive tumor within the lymph node, this is going to be a high-risk disease. There will sometimes be mention of micrometastatic disease in the lymph node, or TN1MI, in which there's a bit less uncertainty whether or not this is as High risk is a, a true macroscopic lymph node involvement. Beyond lymph node status, other factors that are going to be worth keeping in account is how the diagnosis was initially made, whether or not this was diagnosed with screening or by detected symptoms, such as palpating a lump. Patients who palpate lumps are more likely to have disease recurrence. Other high-risk criteria include tumor grading. Tumor grading in breast cancer is a composite score, which utilizes the degree of de-differentiation, the rate of nuclear pleomorphism, and the measurement of mitotic activity. Each of those three components are given a score of 1 to 3, and then compiled into a composite score of 1 to 3, with grade 3 being the highest risk disease. Although there's been great attempts to standardize pathologic grading. As with colon cancer, this is a, there is an issue with um, generalizability between different pathologists. Other high-risk criteria include lymphovascular invasion, hormone negative status, and HER2 positive status. Patient's age and menopausal status also plays a part. Patients who are premenopausal are going to have the highest risk of disease recurrence. And as recurrences can occur, especially in the case of uh, hormone-positive breast cancer, many, many years down the road, patients who are younger are going to have a higher risk of disease recurrence later on as well, and are more likely to derive, to derive benefit. There's another marker called KI67, which is an estimate of the number of cells that are going through meta, um, mitoses at the time of pathologic fixation. And a higher KI67 has also correlated with risk of recurrence. Well, not every pathology lab performs this as part of a standard approach. Although the decision to recommend for or against chemotherapy is systemic therapy is relatively straightforward in patients who are no positive, which is to say that if you're no positive, the risk of disease recurrence is high, and that added 30% risk of breast cancer mortality often outweighs the side effects of systemic therapy. The decision for whether or not to recommend systemic therapy in patients who are lymph node negative is a bit more of a difficult discussion. It's important to take into account the gestalt of these risk criteria that I mentioned, 
tumor grade, hormone status, HER2 status, patient's age, menopausal status, and how the tumor was diagnosed. To help estimate the risk of disease recurrence, there are clinical tools online. There used to be one called Adjuvant Explanation Point online. However, this is currently, this has been down for the last few years. Um, a tool that I often use is called NHS Predict, which is published from the National Health Service of England, and they use clinical trial-level data and population data to estimate the risk of disease recurrence on patients with similar characteristics based on your own patients. So you input these different risk factor criteria, and the tool will print out what the risk of death is at 5 and 10 years for patients who receive surgery alone, those who receive surgery and systemic therapy, and those who receive systemic um, surgery systemic therapy, along with uh, addition of hormonal therapy or HER2-directed therapy if indicated. The discussion of adjuvant chemotherapy in patients with lymph node negative disease is one of the more difficult ones, in, and more recently, uh, for patients who are hormone positive, there's been the addition of um, risk recurrence scores utilizing an NGS genetic panel. And we'll be discussing later on the Oncotype, Mammaprint, as well as other tools that exist, which utilize individual genes on the, that are mutated in the biopsy to help predict the um, added benefits of systemic therapy to hormone therapy alone for hormone-positive breast cancers. I find the discussion around adjuvant systemic therapy and lymph node negative breast cancer to be one of the um, one of the most complex discussions in oncology. Patients will often come with the concept that the surgeon has quote got it all unquote, whether this has been explicitly stated by the surgeon or not. And it's a careful balance to explain that although in patients who are lymph node negative, the rate of cure is in fact high, there remains a risk of recurrence, and that in patients who are recommending systemic therapy for to justify patients feeling very sick for the next three or four months for a potential benefit that may be on the order of a few percent to total overall survival on the order of five to 10 years. I think it's important to have a good grasp on an individual patient's risk of recurrence and to explore values for that individual patient as well as try to adapt your talk to their level of education, understanding, and, and anxiety so that you can help them make the decision that is most within their preference. And this is definitely one of those shared decision-making situations. And I've run into many cases where I think that added benefits for systemic therapy appear clear to me, but the patient um, declines regardless. And in other cases where I think that the systemic therapy benefits are quite marginal, but the patient I'm speaking to has the greatest value on ensuring that the breast cancer does not come back at all. Many patients come to these discussions from well-prepared with the utilization of online support groups, databases, as well as the numerous breast cancer foundations, and come with a perception of what to expect when they enter that oncology clinic. As with any discussion in the field of medicine, it's important to meet people where they are, to allow for an open-ended discussion, and to respect their, their personal values, wishes, and desires, even if they don't necessarily match up with your own. Often, these discussions are not a one-visit event, although sometimes I'll have people come in and it's clear they want systemic therapy right from the get-go. Other times, we use the first discussion as a time to provide the options, provide the information on chemotherapy, and then revisit the discussion maybe one week later. As with colon cancer, it's better to not delay systemic therapy in the adjuvant setting longer than necessary, and outcomes have been shown to be better for patients who do not delay past 12 weeks. But you don't want to rush into decisions such as to receive dose-dense systemic therapy without having everyone on on board with the plan, as this is, a, this is by no means a benign treatment.
American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, have his guidelines on who they would recommend systemic therapy for, and this is patients with hormone-positive disease and a 10-year risk of breast cancer mortality greater than 10%. This could be calculated from one of these risk scores. Or tumors that are triple negative or HER2 positive that are greater than 5 millimeters in size. In general, systemic therapy is administered prior to radiation therapy, given that the best benefit is to give systemic therapy as close as possible to surgery, keeping in mind that you want to examine the breast to ensure that there's been good wound healing, as you would not want to start systemic therapy with any open wounds as these patients will be at high risk for infection. It's also important to make sure that patients are looped in with the radiation oncologist for following their systemic therapy. And I just want to remind that the indications for radiation therapy include patients who get a lumpectomy, partial mastectomy, patients who are lymphoma positive, patients who have a close margin, patients can either see the radiation oncologist prior to chemotherapy or shortly after. I've alluded to neoadjuvant systemic therapy a couple times in this in this discussion already. I've mentioned that this is most likely to be considered in patients with triple negative breast cancer and HER2 positive breast cancer. Part of the reason is that these are the most chemosensitive of breast cancer subtypes. A high yield topic to know are some of the rates of, are the rates of uh, complete pathologic response in various breast cancer subtypes to systemic therapy. So complete pathologic response in breast cancer means that if neoadjuvant systemic therapy is administered at the time of surgery when the pathologist looks at the tumor, they see no viable tumor cells. The highest rate of PCR is seen in hormone negative HER2 positive tumors with a rough estimate of complete pathologic response of 40%. This is followed by triple negative breast cancers, with this, which has a PCR rate of 30%, followed then by hormone positive HER2 positive disease, also known as triple positive breast cancer, which has a PCR of 20%. And the least chemo responsive are hormone positive HER2 negative disease, which has a PCR rate of around 8 to 10%. I've received these estimates from some meta-analyses published in 2012 and 2014. You may say that, see that these uh, PCR rates are different as we've more recently been including smaller triple negative and HER2 positive disease. So the historic reasons for using neoadjuvant systemic therapy was for patients who had large tumors, so that were either T3 or T4, or inflammatory breast cancer, which is a clinical diagnosis where greater than 30% of the breast is involved. And these will present with that classic peau d'orange and usually present with a rapidly progressing history over the course of a few weeks. In these patients, the concern is that at the time of resection, there will be positive margins. So giving systemic therapy chemotherapy prior to surgery can help reduce the amount of total tumor burden that is present in the breast. Other reasons to consider neoadjuvant systemic therapy are for cosmetic purposes. So if patients have a high tumor to breast ratio or patients who, based on their current tumor size, would require mastectomy. And with neoadjuvant therapy, if we can get a response, they may be able to get a partial mastectomy or lumpectomy, which can lead to better long-term cosmesis. More recently, there's been an interest in using neoadjuvant chemotherapy as a chemosensitivity analysis. So there's been some meta-analyses that found that patients who receive new agent systemic therapy that get a complete a pathologic complete response have a significantly higher rate of cure. Should caution that this is a prognostic marker, not a predictive marker. So we've shown that patients who are receiving chemotherapy and have complete pathologic response are more likely to survive longer than those who do not get the response rate. We have not been able to show that giving more intensive therapies prior to surgery 
in order to drive down the tumor into a complete pathologic response is necessarily going to improve outcomes. I think this makes sense because the patients who need the least amount of chemotherapy to receive complete pathologic response probably have the most chemosensitive tumors out there, and those that are requiring higher and higher doses to drive down the complete pathologic response may be masking the more recalcitrant or aggressive tumors. Now, we'll be getting into this in uh, later episodes, but in the triple negative space as well as in the HER2 positive space, we found that patients who do not get complete pathological response at the time of surgery can have improved and disease-free survival outcomes by escalating therapy following surgery. And we'll go into detail on the CREATE-X and the Catherine trial later. So briefly on the topic of surveillance, prior to wrapping things up, as with colon cancer, there are standardized approaches to surveillance following breast cancer. This is primarily going to be done through physical exam and imaging. So for the first five years, patients should have a clinical breast a clinical breast exam every six months, and then annually after five years, they should have an annual mammogram, unless they've had bilateral mastectomies, in which case mammogram can be omitted. Patients should be aware of symptoms of recurrence, which can include focal bony pain, abdominal distension, as well as localized masses at the site of previous tumor resection. They should also be advised on late toxicities, especially if they've received systemic therapy. And some of these can include secondary primary malignancies, myelodysplastic syndrome, leukemia, osteoporosis, and in, and for patients who've received radiation, localized toxicities and cardiomyopathy. Cardiotoxicity can also be a late complication of radiation. However, modern tangential approaches has really reduced this. I have seen a lot of patients who are followed with tumor markers, which are the CEA and CA15-3. However, the guidelines recommend against this as this has not been able to show improvement in long-term outcomes, and the most likely cause of a rising CEA or CA15-3 in the surveillance setting is likely an artifact of other forms of inflammation rather than true breast cancer recurrence. I also want to mention that it's important to be well aware of the psychosocial impact of breast cancer. I've seen a lot of patients who go through surgery, systemic therapy, and radiation and hardly blink, but then after all these treatments are done and they're in the survivorship state, this can take a huge psychological toll on patients. It's one thing to be going treatment to treatment with a with a plan in place, and another thing to then move on and return back to normal life. Being well aware of your patient's uh, mood, not to mention the, the toxicities of these treatments, and especially in the patients who are going to be receiving adjuvant hormone therapy, which can include um, fatigue, arthralgias, hot flashes, sexual dysfunction. We're really setting up our patients for a difficult adjustment in the survivor status, and I think it's important to um, be cognizant of this, have access to social work, as well as psychologists and psychiatrists as, as, for the patients who require it. Although the systemic regimens, so systemic therapy regimens that we uh, use in adjuvant breast cancer is, is, quite a, is quite toxic, and patients are often more often than not worn down by the completion of treatment, I find this to be a very rewarding field to practice medical oncology in, and and being there for these patients through one of the most difficult times of their life over the period of about half a year, and then in the surveillance status, which can go on for many years, decades afterwards, is uh, one of the best parts of medical oncology. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next episode for, uh, once again, just me, sorry, um, and we'll be going into the first, second, and third generation systemic therapy management, and then we'll be rejoined by the wonderful Ryan Quinn to go into management in the different adjuvant settings, as well as subsequently into the metastatic space for hormone positive, HER2 positive, and then triple negative disease, respectively. Look forward to any comments or questions on this topic, and uh, we'll see you all soon. Bye for now. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, 
or feel free to email us at talkingabouttumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of macro oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.